0: Good to see you all. Thank you so much for coming and getting through the uh, the snow. I don't know about you, but um, Easter's coming two weeks, I think. Two weeks today is Easter Sunday. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to Easter. I'm looking forward to no snow, <laughs> hopefully. I don't mind snow. I like snow. I like getting out in the snow with the kids and having fun. But I've now like, I've had enough, you know. Enough's enough. You know, this is England. Let's get over it. Move on. Um, so I'm looking forward to warmer weather. I'm looking forward to spring. I'm looking forward to daffodils and the like. I'm looking forward to chocolate over Easter. I think we'll have a lot of that in our house. I'm looking forward to a bit of time off. We're going to have... I'm looking forward to having the kids off school for a couple of weeks and enjoying all that time. And I'm looking forward to just a new season that sort of spring brings. But in amongst all that... Just like Christmas time, we can't forget the reason for the season, what it's all about. And at Jesus, um, at Easter we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And what we're doing now is we're going to take a pause on our series in Joshua and we're going to spend the next four weeks focusing on this time of year. And we've got a four-week series we are called Easter Reclaimed. And what we're going to do is basically take the back end of Matthew's Gospel, the last two chapters, chapters 27, 28, and we're going to spend some time in there looking at this the centerpiece, really, of the Christian faith, of Jesus' death on the cross, what that means, also his subsequent resurrection from the dead, what that means, and then the commission for us on what that means um, for our lives. And we've, we've framed it around this reclaimed idea, which we used again at Christmas, and we felt God was still speaking to us about that, but he's the God who reclaims lives. And so at this time, we're looking at Easter reclaimed and we've got four parts. I'm looking at rejection reclaimed today, next week is death reclaimed with Melanie, then victory reclaimed on Easter Sunday with me, and then Jeremy is going to do purpose reclaimed and that'll be the end of the series so that's where we're going but if you've got a bible can you turn to Matthew 27 I'm going to read a short passage and then we're going to get into this we're going to start at verse 15 verse 15 Matthew 27 verse 15 I'm just going to read it out from up here now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, big idea for this morning. Big idea for this morning. Jesus was rejected, so ultimately we will not be. And as a result, he reclaims any human rejection say that again. Jesus was rejected, so ultimately we will not be. And as a result, he reclaims any human rejection. What we've got in the story here in the life of Jesus, we're getting right to the end of his earthly life. Jesus has been born in a stable in accordance with the scriptures that prophesied his coming. Fully God, fully man. Something we celebrated at Christmas, and we particularly remember then. He's then grown into a man, began his public ministry around the age of 30, and for about three and a half years or so, he has gone around proclaiming the message of the kingdom. Repent, believe the good news. He's demonstrated his power over sickness by healing the sick. He's demonstrated his power over death by raising the death. He's demonstrated his power over demonic by casting out demons. He's demonstrated his power over creation by huge miracles, walking on water, calming the storm. And he has taught all about the kingdom. And he has gathered followers who come alongside him, particularly 12 we know, his disciples, his close friends who followed him. And public opinion has gone up, but the religious authorities were not happy about him. They didn't believe what he had said, they didn't like him, they sought to destroy him. He was threatening the status quo, even though he was the one that they were looking for. And he's entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, kind of that time on a donkey, and the crowds have welcomed him, and he's been teaching that week in the temple and at the end of that time, what happens? One of his followers decides to betray him, Judas. And Judas had him handed over for a small amount of money. He's handed him over and betrayed him. His followers have fled. They've left him. He is alone. He's been captured. And he has this kind of sham of a trial, a religious trial, where they try to kind of pin him down, but they can't get their witnesses to agree, and their accusations don't seem to stick but they're hell-bent on destroying Jesus. And at the end of that, when they feel they've condemned him, they drag him to the actual authority at the time, which was the Romans. They were the ones in charge and handed him over to them and saying, this is a guy who's a problem. He needs to be dealt with. And that's what we get to this kind of point in the story here. And it says it's at the feast. The feast is the feast of the Passover, the key um, festival in the Jewish calendar which remembers their release from slavery way back in the book of Exodus where they'd gone out and they'd had the plagues and then the final plague the Passover where God had passed over and struck down the firstborn but they'd been set free because they had the blood on their doorposts, because they'd sacrificed the lamb in its place had gone out through the Red Sea the enemies had tried to follow them God had destroyed them and it was became this memorial in the Jewish calendar that they would then celebrate every year say God has delivered us God has saved us and it's that summer year, so loads of people gather in Jerusalem, the sense of kind of their faith, and saying, we're going to celebrate this meal. And it was at that time that this story takes place. And we have Jesus, and he's a prisoner. And he's been given over to the Romans. And it seemed at the time there was a custom On behalf of the governor at the time, this was a man named Pilate, that he would hand over a prisoner, basically trying to appease the people, keep things sweet. The land at the time, that area, was a bit of a a hotbed of the Roman Empire where there was always problems uprisings that need to be put down and it was kind of one of those difficult places of the empire and so they try to keep people sweet and so what would happen was that they would hand over a prisoner and say just to you know try and calm the tensions this time of year we'll we'll make an offering where we'll hand someone over to you that you want who we put in prison for whatever reason (laughs) okay they're our kids just so you know well actually I'm looking at some of your kids and they're throwing snowballs um, at the window, but that's fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what, if I was that age, I'd be doing that. You know, I can't, can't get too cross with them. They are supervised, I just want to say that as well. I have seen our leaders go with them. Um, so that's what we've got to. And they are given a choice between Jesus, who's just been kind of put into their hands, and this man named Barabbas. And Barabbas is described as notorious. He's known for doing bad things. And we read in the book of Mark... He adds a little bit of detail in this, and he said this guy was guilty of leading a rebellion against Roman authority and of murder. So I guess from the Romans' point of view, this guy was a terrorist, he used that lot of language, but he's also a murderer as well. He had killed people in this process, so he was kind of a bad dude in this situation. Kind of however you look at it, he's killing people, it's not a good thing. And so he says to the crowd who are gathered for you, who do you want me to release? Jesus or Barabbas? And he offers them a choice. And interesting, how does he describe Jesus? He doesn't just say Jesus, he's Jesus who is called the Christ. Christ means the Messiah, God's anointed, God's chosen one. This is how he refers to him. He so says, do you want God's chosen? Bear in mind, you're God's people. He didn't say that, I'm adding that, but they are known. We're God's chosen people. Do you want God's chosen or do you want the murderer? And what do they shout back? We want Barabbas. We want the murderer. And Pilate knew, the governor knew what was going on. here. He wasn't stupid. He knew that they delivered Jesus up out of envy, it says. He knew that they're trying to play some political game. They're trying to get rid of one of their rivals, one of their adversaries in this um, situation. And He knew that they were stirring things up and they're trying to sort of pull him down. But he's giving the crowd an opportunity to say, well, actually, let's see, you're a bit more level-headed. Who are you going to choose in this situation? God's anointed or this guy who's been guilty of insurrection and murder? And they call out, we want Barabbas. We want him. And then you get a little aside. And the lesson here for all of us is listen to your wives just saying that. Listen to your wives. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat. So you've got, you've got to imagine, Pilate is at work, doing a very important part of his work, sitting on the judgment seat before a crowd with two kind of prisoners in front of him. And the wife comes to interfere. Just saying that. Of course, that never happens with you guys. But I'm, So she's bothering him while he's doing an important job. You know, and not just the important, the important bit of his job. I'm dealing with people. Life and death is involved here. And so she obviously felt strongly enough to do that. And what does it say happened? It says she had a dream. And at the time, they took dreams very, very seriously. They were seen as kind of signs and portents. And actually was was, was the gods or gods speaking through these things. And this lady, Pilate's wife, was obviously so troubled... Maybe she had the dream, Pilate had got up early to go to work, and maybe she'd stayed in bed or something, but she'd been so bothered by this that she felt she could interrupt him at work doing something very important. And she says, have nothing to do with this. And how does he describe him? Righteous man. This guy's a good guy. He's okay. Don't have anything. To, don't get involved with kind of trying to, do anything with him, he's alright, let him go, because she said I've suffered much from a dream, this, this, the fact that she suffered means she probably had fitful sleep, it was playing on her mind something was it bothering her and she felt compelled to tell her husband about it, and it seems all the more crazy that once she's inter- you know, she's interrupting her husband which you could maybe understand, they've obviously got a close relation, married, been married a period of time, but it, what's more crazy is who she's Interceding on behalf of. Bear in mind, she's a Roman. The Romans are in charge. They ruled, they had everything. They had the power, the authority. To be a Roman citizen was the ultimate trump card at the time. You were afforded um, protection and privileges that no one else in the empire got. And she is now interceding on behalf of a Galilean peasant. And she's saying, Don't have anything to do with this guy. He's righteous. He's okay. Let him go, effectively, is what she's saying. And this Roman woman of high nobility is now interceding on behalf of a peasant. So she felt strong enough to bother her husband about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> another lesson here, a her husband ignores him. Okay, listen to your wives. Now the chief priest, it says, okay, they persuaded the crowd because it says they very simply, very starkly, they wanted to destroy Jesus. And so Pilate goes back to them, even though he's heard this message from his wife, saying, who do you want me to release? And they again, they shout, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And so then Pilate asks them a question, okay, then what are we going to do with this guy, Jesus? Again, referring to him as the Christ. He's basically saying, what do you want me to do with God's anointed, God's chosen, God's Messiah, the one who has been prophesied hundreds of years before? What do you want me to do with that one person? And they shout out the ultimate thing, the most horrific thing ever imaginable. They say, Let him be crucified. Crucified wasn't just a crucifixion wasn't just a mode of execution. We still have that today in certain parts of the world, the death penalty. It was the most horrific and most barbaric form of execution ever invented. They say it was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. They would nail people to crosses and just leave them there for hours. It was so horrific that they invented a new word to describe the horror of the cross. Excruciating. It literally means out of the cross. That's how bad it was. We had to invent a new word to describe the suffering that an individual feels when they're on the cross. It was so bad that it was something that Roman citizens could never be executed. They say it's so bad we're not going to do it for them. We'll do it for others, but no Roman citizen, even no matter what crime they commit, will never be executed by crucifixion. And so that's what the crowd is saying. Let him be crucified, utterly destroyed, humiliated. And Pilate then says to them, why? What's he done? What's the charges against this man? And they cry out all the more, screaming, let him be crucified. And Pilate, in this thing, he's the authority. He's the one who knows, who can do something about it. He's the one, and he's trying to kind of, he's showing his cowardly side here by saying to them, actually, what shall I do? He's, he's looking for a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's had his wife come to say to him, don't do it. He's now hoping the crowd give him an out and say, well, we'll, have, we'll have Jesus, you can let him go, and job done. But the crowd box him in and say, no, we only want Barabbas they've doubled down on their decision they're going to push this and if Pilate is going to do something about it he's the one who's got to take kind of the initiative and take his authority and not abdicate but what happens it seems that there was a riot beginning to break out and so Pilate says he washed his hands before the crowd and that was a symbol of showing someone's innocence and in one sense Pilate is saying well I'm innocent of what's going on here but the irony is he's not he's the the one in authority he's the one who's actually making this all happen he's allowing it to happen on his watch and so actually he's abdicating his responsibility he's trying to evade it and it says how did the crowd respond to that they're actually all the more saying yes have him killed and Pilate says his blood's not on my hands is what he's trying to say which is of course not the truth but that's what he's saying and then we get what I think is the most chilling Verse in this passage and it says uh, verse 25 and all the people answered his blood that's Jesus' blood be on us and on our children and you always want to scream do you know what you're saying do you realize the implication of those words they obviously didn't or else they wouldn't have said it but there's that idea of actually we don't care we are so committed to our course of action. We're so lost and blind in our hatred towards who Jesus is and what he came to do that we don't care. Damn the consequences, they're thinking. And actually the consequences were huge um, for everyone. And so what happens at the end of the story? It says Barabbas is released. The guilty man goes free. And what happens to the innocent man? Matthew put it very kind of succinctly. It says Jesus was scourged, which even in and of itself was a horrific ordeal. Many people died just from the scourging. They never actually got to the crucifixion because they were whipped uh, with a whip that had many strands on it. And in the strands were bits of metal and bone that as they whipped it onto the bare back of the victim, it would dig in. And as they yanked it, it would yank out flesh. And it was, there, were, there were accounts of people literally being flayed to the bone. Their internal organs and bones were visible at the end of a scourge. And it was horrific. And so just in one word, Matthew said, that's what happened to Jesus. And then he was handed over to be crucified, which we will come back to next week when we look at death being reclaimed. All right, three things I want us to look at here, um, looking at the rejection of Jesus that I just want to go through. And then we'll look at a way of applying it to our lives. The first one Jesus' rejection was total. It was total. If you follow the story of Jesus up to this point, he was rejected by his friends and followers, chapter 26. If you just flick back a page or two in your Bible, you will see that. The disciples flee. They're praying in the garden. The mob with the Roman soldiers turn up to arrest him. Let's get this guy. They leg it. They run. They flee. So his. Friends have left him. They've rejected him. He, despite you know them saying, we're going to be with you to the end. And as soon as a sign of trouble, oh my goodness, they're all off. They run. He's been rejected by the religious authorities. Those who proclaim to serve him. Those who've been waiting for him. Those who are the keepers of God's word that talk about him. They've rejected him. They're the ones who've handed him over and said... We're gonna you know, we don't want anything to do with you. He's been rejected by the people, the crowd, his people, who he came for. The ones he's been preaching to, the ones he's been demonstrating miracles, he's been healing, feeding. They're saying no, he's rejected by the governing authorities of the world at the time. The government, which was the Roman authorities, they've totally rejected him, and then if you just scan forward to verse forty six We see ultimately he was rejected by his Father in heaven at his death on the cross. Jesus knew and experienced rejection on every level possible. Emotional, physical, spiritual. He is completely and utterly alone. And this isn't just devastating in the sense of, it's sad for someone to go through that. It's more staggering when we think about who Jesus actually is. He's the one that those the disciples chose to follow. He's the one that they put their faith and trust in. He's the one who said to Peter, who do you say I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are Christ. You are the one. You are God's chosen. You're the one we've been waiting for. And they, the disciples followed him, put their faith and trust in him, yet they left him. The people, the Jewish nation, the one who'd read their scripture, who'd heard the prophets, who'd been reading the scrolls saying, we know what's coming. And Jesus would be saying, that's me. They're rejecting him and saying, no, crucify him. We don't have anything to do with him. The religious leaders, the ones that God had put in place to lead his people, to point them towards him. Through the temple and the sacrifice and the festivals, they all point to him. And they're saying, no, we don't want anything to do with it." And even Roman, the Roman rulers reject him. And he is the rightful ruler. He's the king and kings and lord of lords over everything. And they reject him. They are completely saying, no, we don't want anything to do with you anyway whatsoever. And there's a question we kind of need to ask ourselves out of this. Have you ever experienced rejection? Have you ever been through rejection? Whether it's relational rejection through work or family or friendships. Because whatever you've been through, know that Jesus has also been through it as well. He's experienced it on a deeper level than any of us could ever imagine. The second thing that Jesus experienced in terms of rejection was that it was, as staggering as it was, it was completely and utterly expected. There was no surprise here. Jesus wasn't caught out. Oh my goodness, what's happening? Circumstances have got away from me. God the Father wasn't looking at and thinking, what are they doing to my son? It was completely expected. In fact, it wasn't just expected, it was planned and predicted the purpose of God was to have a people for himself that's always been the purpose Genesis 1 Genesis 2 he created a world and he put his people and said you are my people I am your God that's always been the plan we go to the end of the book what do we have God with his people in his place that's always been God's purpose but because of what man did he knew that he had to go through this to reclaim man for himself and if you go back to the beginning, go back to Genesis chapter 3, after everything's got wrong, the first initial hint of the gospel where it says there would one come to crush the serpent, the serpent being the devil. He said he will crush the serpent and he will destroy his works. But what would happen to the one who was going to crush the devil? It says the devil would strike at its heel. There would be, there would be damage back even in victory. There would be something devastating. And it's probably the most clearly seen in Isaiah 53. The the section of the prophets referred to often as the suffering servant. It says this, describing Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What we read is horrific and when we dwell on it, it's it's staggering to think about. But in the plan and purpose of God, it was all planned, predicted and expected. Jesus had to go through this Horrific rejection. And the final thing to look at when it comes to the rejection of Jesus was that he was our substitute. He was our substitute. He was rejected in our place. Just reading that last passage, the amount of times it says the word our there. It's talking about we were the problem and he was rejected in our place. In that story we've just read, we can put ourselves into it in lots of ways to try and understand it. But the most obvious, clear one is we stand in the place of Barabbas. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones guilty of crimes before God, before a holy God, before a perfect God. We're guilty of lying and cheating and stealing and, and evil, vicious thoughts, things we've done, things we thought, things we haven't done, which we should have done. We've done so many things. So when it comes to stand before an authority, we're the ones guilty. We're the ones condemned. We're the ones who deserve a horrific punishment for our crimes. Yet next to us stands Jesus, who is innocent, holy, righteous, he's described it. And who's the one who goes free? We do. We're free and Jesus is condemned in our place. The one who is holy and perfect takes our punishment and we get to go free. And we can also look at that story and we can put ourselves in other places in the story which just highlight the depths of our guilt and our crime. We stand in the place of the crowd where we are given a stark choice that the whole world is given. Who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose Barabbas? Or are you going to choose Jesus? And every single one of us at one point or another has shouted with all our might, we choose Barabbas. We choose living by our own way, by our own rules. We want nothing to do with you, Jesus. We want nothing to do with the fact that you're king and you're ruler of, of creation. I want to thank that you have authority over us. You have a right to tell us how we live because you created us we want nothing to do that we want to go our own way we want to be lord of our life we want to live our life our own way by our own morality and our own rules and our own regulation and the number one person in the world is us and we will do everything we can to serve us and we've stood in that place and yelled that like the religious authorities we've been envious of the rule of God so we don't want you ruling we who do you think you are telling us how to live who do you think you are putting things in place for, to guide us and live us? We want nothing to do with that. We want to live our own life. We don't want you in charge. We want to be in charge. We're envious of the row. We want to usurp your position. And we want to sit in the throne of our lives. And we want to dictate how we're doing. And like Pilate, we are cowards. And we are weak. And we don't listen to when the right words come to us and people tell us to do the things even God speaks and says you should act in a certain way you should do that you should repent and listen to my message we think no we want nothing to do that we want a life of ease we want comforts we want problems to go away we just want to deal with ourselves and make everything well for us so when we stand before an infinitely good and infinitely holy God we fall infinitely short of that and as a result we deserve punishment we are guilty We are condemned and we deserve death. Yet, in our place, there is a substitute. Jesus, who takes that all for us. All right, what does this mean to us? And we'll finish up here. Jesus' rejection was total, complete. It was expected and it was in our place for us. So, what does that mean for us as believers right now? Number one. ultimately it means we will never ever be rejected we will never be rejected because jesus was rejected in our place we will never ever have to face ultimate rejection he went through it willingly he knew why he'd come from the beginning it was the plan of purpose of god since eternity past the lamb of god was slain before the beginning of the world it says he knew why he came And he did it willingly so that we never have to face that kind of rejection that he faced. He experienced ultimate and total rejection so that we might be reclaimed for him. He took the punishment we deserve and in his place we receive right standing with God and in this life and in the life to come. Because of him... And we are now believers. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're a Christian and you choose to follow him and you want to do so for the rest of your life, things happen in our life because of what Jesus has done. We are now holy. We are no longer condemned and guilty. we are now holy. We now stand with Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. We have right standing before God. We can go before a judge and the only thing he can say to us is, Not guilty. Not because of anything we've done, because we've received Christ's um, righteousness. We are now adopted into his family, which means we have a Father in heaven we can speak to at any time. The Bible just says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which means God's presence dwells not only with us, but in us. We have the very presence of God in us, wherever we go, whatever we're doing. Nothing can ever remove that from us. We will never be alone. We have unlimited access to God. And we can come to God at any time, in any place, and make bold requests of Him. Large, outrageous requests of our Father in Heaven. We can ask Him to intervene in situations in our lives. Intervene in the lives of our friends. We can just make the commands, demands for our own life and what He provides us. And we can just come and speak to our Father in Heaven. We have the peace of God which passes understanding, which guards us no matter what the world chucks at us. No matter what you're facing, what's coming, God's peace is on you and with you and will guard you when the storms rage and the arrows fly. We are part of His family, the church. That should get at least a whoop, you know, kind of. This is the church. You're looking around and you think, Really? Do I have to look at these? Really? This is God's plan for you, to be part of his family, the church, the people of God. We've been adopted into this great, big, worldwide, century-spanning family of God's people. And we can enjoy relationship and fellowship on another level because we have a connection that is eternal between us. And we can enjoy that because of what God has done. And as we look forward, we have a future that is completely secure. That when that day comes and it's coming for us all, when this life ends, we will go into an eternity with God forever. And we will never know rejection. We will never know separation. We will be with him and we will see him face to face and we will celebrate his goodness and his grace for eternity. And that is incredible. And the one who rules heaven and earth, the one who created everything, will never ever reject us. And that is something you can build your life on. We are his through eternity. We have been completely reclaimed. And that is wonderful news. And that is a cause of celebration. And the second thing we can hold on to is that every rejection we have ever experienced can be used by God because of what Jesus did. Every rejection that we have experienced can be used by God. Whatever you've gone through in your life to date by God's grace can be used by him for his glory and your good. It can be reclaimed for God. You may have gone through rejection from family, maybe from parents, maybe from siblings, maybe from children have rejected you. You can go through relationship, um, rejection in relationships, whether it's a marriage relationship or a, a friendship relationship. It can happen at work with colleagues and bosses who reject you and act evilly towards you. It can even happen, heaven forbid, in church life where friends, leaders reject you for whatever reason. And whatever it is, God can reclaim it. I know this Because I know my Bible, but I also know it from personal experience. I know I've been through seasons of rejection in work and in church that have been devastating for me. And it had affected me and affected my family. And I've had some time to process them and they've been hurtful and wounding. And I carry the scars in one sense. But at the same time, if I hadn't gone through them, this church wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be here. If God hadn't taken my life and reclaimed what had happened and turned it around and used it for his good and poured out his grace on me and put men and women around me who caused me to deal with this, the mess in my life and the pain I'd gone through, we wouldn't be here. Real life church wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have moved to Sutton with a small team to make this happen and God's grace would not have been poured out on us. And that's all about his glory and what he can do when he reclaims a life and he reclaims a hurt. Now, this obviously doesn't excuse what happens to you. Rejection is painful and horrible and often the acts of evil, malicious thoughts, misunderstanding the light, and that doesn't make it right and doesn't excuse what happened. Those things that happened to you, I imagine, were wrong and are wrong and always will be wrong. But what can happen in the midst of pain and suffering is that God can use it for his glory. And he can turn it round and he can reclaim it and he can use every rejection you've ever been through and he can use it to advance his kingdom and see more and more lives changed. So just to finish, what does this mean for us here today? First one, you need to be a Christian and be reclaimed. If you're not a believer here, you need to come to Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and you need to put your faith and trust in him. You have a choice. You are the crown standing before Pilate on his seat and you have a choice. Are you going to pick Barabbas or are you going to pick Christ? And it's only down to you and you get to make it. And just to be really bold and clear about this, if you don't choose Jesus, you've chosen Barabbas by default. And you have an option. Do you choose Jesus or do you choose the world? Do you choose Jesus or do you choose yourself? Do you choose Jesus or do you choose living life your own way and making your own rules? Or do you come to the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves you with an eternal everlasting love? Who came to this earth particularly to die for you and rise from death so that you may know him and be with him for eternity? What are you going to choose? And if you're not a believer here today, you need to make that decision. I'd love to chat with you about it at the end. Um, there's many others who would as well but that's your decision second thing you, as if you're here today you need to allow God to heal rejection and reclaim it in your life and let me be very clear it's a choice and you have to make it you have to choose to seek forgiveness for the individuals who hurt you and that doesn't excuse what they did absolutely not But you still have to choose to make that choice, to process the pain, to process the hurt, to talk about it, to own it. Even just to say, I was wounded, I was hurt, I was rejected, is a huge step in that journey. And actually being able to say, I'm going to do that. And then process forgiveness, process what it means, process the damage it's done in your life, what that looks like. And how, how do I need to help, what do I need God to do to help change me to come out of this? And you need to make that choice for yourselves. Are you going to allow God to reclaim the mess? And the way God works, I'm aware, over the years, works. is you're thinking about it right now. You know what the situation is. You know the person. You know the incident. You even can remember the words that were spoken to you at that time. What was done to you. And I beg you, by God's grace, listen to his spirit. He wants to reclaim and deal with whatever happened in your life and help you. And secure you. Last thing, this Easter, spend time in your Bible, in worship, in prayer. We're going to be studying the back end of Matthew. If you're just not doing anything, just read that. Read the last few chapters of the book of Matthew. Get into that. We're praying this Tuesday as a church. We're praying into this Easter thing, everything that's going on. Come join us to pray in this school this Tuesday night. Worship, we're going to do that now. We've read, there's a, an album recommended, grab it, it's on the emails, listen to it, worship. Enjoy the fact that you are not a rejected people. You are a chosen people. You have been called by God from eternity past to be with him forever. He knows you by name. He knows you are going to be here today. He knows what you come with. Enjoy it, celebrate it. Shout his praises. Actively choose Jesus again now. We have an opportunity when we stand to worship. Which are you going to choose Barabbas or are you going to choose Christ? And as believers we need to make that choice daily. Hourly. I today choose Jesus. I want to follow you. I want to praise you for your substitute in my place. I want to thank you that you were totally rejected so that I don't have to be. That you took my place. You suffered so I don't have to be. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand up? I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship Jesus. Just want to just close your eyes. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, Look, is we want to thank you and we want to praise you today, but we want to thank you again of what you did on that first Easter, Lord, where you were rejected in our place, Lord, that you had planned that since eternity past with the Father and the Spirit that you would go through that, Lord Jesus. And I want to thank you and praise you for that, Lord. I want to thank you that you bore that in our place so that we don't have to. Lord, God, we want to say we love you and we praise you. Lord God, and we want to stand today and say we want to enjoy what it means to be chosen by you. We want to enjoy what it means to be full of your spirit, to have right standing with you, to be holy in your sight. Lord, we want to celebrate your death and resurrection that enabled all this to come about Lord God we want to stand here today and say Lord we choose you we choose you Lord Jesus we reject the world we reject ourselves and our own selfish desires reject the kind of the, the culture that would push us one way Lord and we turn our faces toward you and say Lord we choose you Lord we praise you Lord we worship you Lord we love you and God's people, set. Amen.